Welcome to the Journal.ie's The Explainer, where every week we take a deep dive into a different news story. I'm Sinead O'Carroll, and this week, what are the numbers telling us about COVID-19? It's really been a very, very, very long nine months. Our patience is wearing thin or is already very thin. So we're all a little bit more likely to get tired and emotional about, well, well, actually just about anything. Who makes a Bake Off final? Why Ireland can't get just one tiny, tiny, tiny stroke of luck on or off the football field? And why is it so dark so early outside? And that's just the small stuff, not the current big debates like whether Ireland should pursue zero COVID or go back to level three or hell, go to level two and see what happens. There's someone with an argument for one or the other everywhere you turn at the moment, and it just adds to the exhaustion. So we wanted to just get someone on here who has access to the numbers to ask what the cold hard data is telling us about COVID-19 in Ireland right now. You have sent in questions and we have some of our own too. So I'm going to welcome back Maynooth University scientist Philip Nolan, who is the chair of Neffet's Modelling Advisory Group. Thanks a million, Philip, for joining us on The Explainer. Delighted to be with you. Case numbers had been falling and it looked like we were making quite comfortable progress over the last few weeks um, at the end of level three and as we went into level five. But now the five day moving average is going in the opposite direction. It went from 350 cases to 424 we heard at the last briefing. Do we have any insight as to how this happened? I think let's start by emphasizing the positives here as a country and collectively as citizens, we've done an extraordinary job. Look at where we've come from. We've come from a five-day average of almost 1,200 cases a day, a 14-day incidence of 305 per 100,000, and our health system on a trajectory to being overwhelmed. And our collective effort has turned that trend around really quickly. So as you say, we're down to a five-day average of 400, we're, we're down to a 14-day incidence of around 120. And you, but you're right, uh, just over the last couple of days, um, that very rapid decrease in case counts and incidence has stalled. It's just stalled for a couple of days. And when we look at it, it, it looks to us like just a subtle, very marginal increase in the level of social mixing um, in the week immediately after the long term or the midterm break, uh, the week beginning the 2nd of November, uh, we can see it in a variety of data, mobility data, uh, the number of contacts, close contacts for confirmed cases, that we just marginally relaxed a little bit in the level to which we were restricting our social contacts. And that's given us this, uh, this hopefully just short setback that, that we have today. And just to close out in the answer to that question, again, people have done an extraordinary job. If we look back to September, typically any COVID positive case, any confirmed case was reporting five, six contacts in the preceding 48 hours. Um, that's down to about two. So as, as a community, uh, we have more than halved our social contacts in the last two months, progressively alongside the, the restrictions the government has introduced. And that's what has us where we are. And it's only it only requires a marginal change, like the difference between 2.3 contacts on average and 2.5 or 2.3 and 2 is the difference between case numbers creeping up over time and case numbers continuing to decline. For that week that you say then, the week of the 2nd November to 9th of November, do you know what kinds of interactions led to that increase in close contact numbers? 
Well, it's very diffuse. So in in many cases, it's simply community transmission. We don't know uh, where the individual caught the disease, but we are seeing transmissions in workplaces and we are seeing transmissions um, at social gatherings. The example has been given uh, around funerals and particularly in that case, it's completely understandable when people are grieving uh, that they might give in to the temptation uh, to comfort each other and get together for a social gathering. But we are seeing in any circumstance, frankly, where people get together, particularly where they let their guard down, maybe people that they work with, that they're familiar with, or members of their family that they're familiar with. Understandably, we might tend to relax and have increased physical contact as well as the social contact. And broadly speaking, across society, in those circumstances, that's where we're seeing the disease spread. Is there any particular sector industry when you talk about workplaces? Because obviously it's such a huge uh, cohort to just to say workplaces. Is there any anyone that is being seen as uh, more common in in the clusters, or or in fact industries that aren't there at all? For example, the way we saw supermarkets didn't feature massively in the first wave. No, it's it is very very um, widely distributed across a whole set of different kinds of workplaces. So. Unlike the experience during the summer, where we had a very particular issue in uh, meat and food processing, we're not seeing any particular sector. In fact, the common characteristic is that we're seeing likely disease transmission more often in the um, social aspects of working together than in the actual working. So uh, unfortunately, where people tend to congregate and have a cup of coffee or just chat together, um, are the circumstances in which um, uh, the disease is transmitting. I was looking at some of the replies to your tweets over the last week where you're explaining some of the, the numbers behind all of this. And one theory being posited by a lot of people was that schools went back from the 2nd to 9th of November after their midterm break. Does this play a factor? Uh, only indirectly. Um, so again, there remains no ev- there is no evidence, and, and there hasn't been any recent or distant evidence that the act of going to school, in other words, bringing the uh, young people and their teachers together in school, uh, there's very few instances where we suspect the transmission has occurred in the school setting. What actually happened was people stayed away from work during the week uh, of the midterm break. So probably to be with their children, uh, the adults in the households, there was mu- they were much more likely to stay at home, much less likely to go into work, may well have been working remotely. So in the week immediately after the midterm break, we began to see more attendances at workplaces than we had during the midterm break. And it was that increase in travel to uh, work within uh, the workplaces in the week after that we suspect um, uh, uh, is associated with kind of more social mixing that we got during the midterm break that is leading to the um, slight increase in case numbers that we're seeing now. And is the social interaction, is that between families, extended families meeting other extended family or is it friends or do we know what kind of cohorts are meeting and is there a particular age group that is doing it more than other age groups? Um, again, it's... it's um, very diverse. Uh, we are seeing mixing between households again in this very understandable way. It's it, it's hard to stay at home. Uh, it's hard to choose not to go over to a friend's house 
just to have a conversation or a bite to eat with them. So we're seeing it occur in those contexts. We're seeing it occur in extended family contexts. Uh, we're seeing some parties, not many. So as I said, it, it's very diffuse and again, very marginal. If we think back to where we were, five to six contacts per case, now down to close to two, the vast majority of people are doing everything that needs to be done almost all the time. And quite broadly across society, uh, there's just the occasional marginal relaxation in that regime, if I can put it that way, that that that, that brings us the, 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 the number of cases that we've had over the last week. And um, there is no age group um, in general. People over 65 are even more careful uh, than people under 65. But one of the big stories of the last six weeks has been the extent to which younger people, uh, people under 30 who are intensely pro-social, they're forming their social networks. There's a very strong um, urge to get out there and, and meet people. Uh, they have done a huge amount of, of work and have been enormously careful um, over the last uh, six to eight weeks, uh, progressively bringing their level of contact down and progressively bringing the incidence um, of disease down. At peak, there was over 400 per 100,000 people in the 19 to 24 age bracket uh, with this disease. Uh, that's down below 100. So the incidence of the disease in the 19 to 24 age group is quarter now what it was uh, a few weeks back. And that hasn't seen, has that seen a spike in the last week or in the last few days? I wouldn't use the word spike. I mean, as I say, we, we, were, we were going very rapidly uh, down in, in case numbers and, and we've hit a bump. Um, so it's not that case numbers are, are increasing rapidly or anything like that. They're simply not going down as, as quickly as they were. And the level of the social mixing that we're seeing that's behind that is occurring pretty uniformly across age groups. So everybody was less mobile. Everybody had reduced their contacts, probably to a minimum, to be honest with you. And then right across the age groups, a, a slight relaxation has stopped the decline in case numbers. What do we need to see then over the next two weeks for the trajectory of the disease to be going where you want to see it in your modelling? I want to come back to this issue that it's marginal. I want to, The first thing that I want to say is just how extraordinary a job everybody has done. Uh, people have done, I would say, in their minds, everything that has been asked of them. Uh, to radically reduce their, their contacts. What's happened here is a marginal change in what we're doing as an entire population. 80 out of 100 people may be doing exactly the same thing this week as they did last week and the week before, seeing very few people. And there might be 15 or 20 people who are seeing marginally more. And it is really a question of one or two extra social contacts every couple of days for a minority of the population is the difference between the disease shrinking and the disease growing. So what I'm asking people is just think about the social contacts that you're planning over the next week or 10 days and ask yourself, do you really need to do all of them? Could you shift some of them outdoors so that they're less dangerous? Could you be more careful if you feel you do have to visit somebody 
and spend time with them indoors? Would you consider wearing a mask? Would you be careful to keep your distance? Would you consider making it a shorter visit? Uh, would you consider not eating with them? So all of those practices of limited, safe social mixing are the things that we need to emphasize over the coming weeks. And what if that doesn't work? What if the contexts, even though still relatively low, remain at what they are and we continue to see these bumps? What's the plan? Well, I'm not going to speculate on on where we're going to be in two weeks' time. It's a very important issue. It's a very sensitive issue. Government uh, has a very complex set of things to take into account when deciding what to do from the 1st of December, and they're going to take all of the advice available to them um, and all of the considerations that they have to think through and, and put a plan in place that will see us uh, through December and into the early part of January. So I'm not going to speculate on what that might be, but fundamentally, uh, what we as NEFET have to do is, is continually watch these numbers and continually feed our advice to government. And there's always a fundamental. The fundamental has to be that if the disease is increasing, we have to look at where are risky social contacts that transmit the virus happening and advise government about how they might reduce those contacts or eliminate them so that the virus doesn't transmit. So if that doesn't work in inverted commas, um, we're going to have to look again at where the virus is transmitting and what advice or restriction or guidance or support would we advise government to put in place to prevent the virus transmitting in those settings? I'm, I'm a little bit loath to mention the C word, but it is a huge part of the conversation because the, 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 this set of restrictions is due to end on the 1st of December. People are dangling Christmas as a carrot to some and a stick to others. Will there be bespoke advice around Christmas? Because obviously there'll be a lot of people who want to mix in a way that we know is risky. You know, extended households, meeting in households, eating, drinking, all the things that we know we're not meant to be doing right now. Yeah, um, and that is a matter for government. All I can say is that both NEFIT and government are both empathetic and sensitive uh, to just how important a time of year uh, Christmas is to us. I mean, since the dawn of time, uh, it's, you know, in a dark part of the world, uh, we've, we've, we've uh, had ways and means and rituals of getting through the darkest days of winter. So I think everybody understands that people are going to need to see each other uh, in, in the course of the December and early January period, both NEFIT and government are working very hard to uh, support the public and explain to the public uh, how they can do that safely. We know it's going to be different. We know it's going to be more limited in terms of the amount of socialization. But there are two steps to this. The first step is to get us into December with the lowest possible number of cases. And that will be what it will be. It will be 100 cases a day, 200 cases a day, 300 cases a day. We don't know yet. Uh, but the emphasis now is that even marginal just adjustments in our behavior over the next two weeks can make the difference there. And the lower that number is, the more flexibility we'll have over the subsequent couple of weeks. And in the background right now, NEFIT and government are working together uh, on, on what framework might be put in place 
um, for the December, early January period, depending on what the case numbers might be, uh, to support people through that very important time of year. When when do you think you'll be able to decide on that, the, the target number? Well, we, I, I don't think we should have a target number in our head at the moment. Like, frankly, we're going to have to de- deal with whatever wherever we find ourselves on the 1st of December, if you know what I mean. So so like, you know, 100 cases a day is great. 200 cases a day isn't as good, but it's manageable. So I, I, I don't think we should set ourselves a hard target. We should put our heads down over the next couple of, couple of weeks, see where we get to, and then manage the situation when we get to that place. The one thing we need to remember is we're in a far better place now than we would have been if people didn't put in the almost four weeks of hard effort they've put in over the last four weeks. You know, uh, we were at 1,200 cases a day going exponentially in the wrong direction. And now we're at uh, 400 cases a day and probably stable, perhaps slowly decreasing, perhaps slowly increasing. And who knows what the next two weeks will hold because one of the things that we've seen right through the August, September, October period is that the public read the signals. Uh, They've become very literate in what the data is showing them. For all we know, people could be dialing down their level of social contact right now and, and perhaps have been for a few days based on the news that case numbers are going back up. So the optimist, the optimist in me imagines that might be happening. And we might see case numbers decline again. And if that's the place we're in at the end of the month, well, then that's good news for us. Um, and, and hugely better uh, than where we would have been um, if we hadn't gone through this period of, of level five restrictions. Yeah, because that's one of the other major talking points in the arguments and debates that I was talking about at the start of this podcast, that we could have stayed in level three and that would have seen that level three restrictions were working. We just needed time to give the household restrictions, the really tight uh, ban on household visits to to bed in and that we could have got down just like that in level three. You say that's not true. What in the data can you tell us shows us why that's not true? Well, I should be fair to everybody and say I think that that's unlikely. So it's in my view, it's very unlikely that the level three restrictions alone would have done anything more than stabilize the disease at 800 to 1200 cases a day. The introduction on top of that of uh, very strict restrictions on visiting each other's households, in fact, essentially a ban on visiting each other's households, that's an added and important measure. And if strictly adhered to, you would think should have started to bring case numbers down. So that's a separate matter. The, the ban on household visits is an, imp- is an important measure. But there's no doubt in my mind that layering on top of that, uh, the very strict level five restrictions, particularly in combination with that opportunity that people took to genuinely stay at home in, in the course of the school midterm break, gave us the very rapid uh, decline in cases that we saw up until about a week ago. So broadly speaking, I think level three measures simpliciter stabilize the disease. Adding a ban on household visits 
to that may well decrease it. And then level four and level five clearly bring about um, much more rapid decreases uh, in the instance of the disease. I think the best evidence around that is the impact of level three measures in Dublin and to a certain extent, the impact of level three measures uh, in, in Donegal that we did see uh, their effect in both of those counties appeared to be a stabilization of the disease rather than a decrease of the disease. Frankly, given where we were a few weeks back at 1200 cases a day, it would have been a brave experiment. And particularly if you look around, look at what happened and is happening around Europe uh, in the weeks subsequent to our decision, it would have been a brave and in my view, quite risky experiment to say, we think level three plus will work. Uh, let's hold off for another couple of weeks. We could, we could have found ourselves one, I have to admit, we didn't do the experiment. You could have found ourselves in an okay situation with a thousand-ish cases a day or perhaps less. But we could also have found ourselves in a really appalling situation with 2,000 plus cases a day uh, if, if level three did anything less than stabilize the disease. Looking back to the first wave and comparing it to this wave, are they broadly the same or is there any distinct differences that you can see in the data? So the, the data is very different and that, that kind of leads to an understandable confusion at times, if I can put it that way. The, the first message is that the virus is not behaving in any way differently. It's just as virulent, it's just as dangerous, particularly if you're older or vulnerable as it was back in April or May. So there's no evidence that the virus has become any less uh, lethal there's no evidence that it's become kind of seasonal and is, is going away of its own accord. When the virus goes down, it's because people stop mixing. When it goes up, it's because they're mixing again. But there are important differences. Our testing regimen was really only getting off the ground during the first wave. So the first thing to remember is the seroprevalence study showed this. For every case we detected back in April and May, um, there were probably two other cases out there that were milder, asymptomatic, didn't come to attention, weren't tested. So we were seeing five, 600 cases a day back then. There were probably 1,500, 1,800 infections a day. And most of those we would be detecting now if uh, we had the testing regimen we have now back then, we would have detected those cases. So probably 1500, 1800 infections a day. We had a peak 14 day instance of about 180, 200 per 100,000. So we would have been thinking about a 14 day instance of five to 600 per 100,000 if we'd been testing everybody, uh, testing all the close contacts and so on as we are now. So first of all, when we look at the number of cases and the 14 day instance in April and May, that's an underestimate of the total burden of infection. And when we see a 14 day instance of 300 per 100,000 and about 1200 cases a day now, we're probably detecting most of the cases. So the second wave is probably about half the first wave in terms of the true number of underlying infections. And that's why um, mortality rates and so on and hospitalization rates, when you compare them to case numbers, uh, seem an awful lot lower uh, in the second wave. Uh, than in the first. So if, if you're comparing the number of people in hospital, the number of people sadly dying and looking at 
how come that is in inverted commas only five, six or seven a day now when it was 20, 30, 40 a day back in March and April? There are three reasons. Um, first of all, uh, there was an awful lot of mild and moderate disease back in March and April that we simply didn't detect. Um, and those people were fine, didn't need hospitalization and fortunately didn't die. The second reason is an awful lot of the cases we're seeing now are in younger people. So in March and April, very sadly, older people got hit with the disease very early on. And we got, saw a very high incidence in older people within a fortnight of the disease arriving in the country. For the second wave, uh, older people were much more conservative in, in their uh, social activities and it took a long time for older people to become infected. And the third thing is, if you look back March and April, sadly, almost two thirds of the deaths were in long-term residential care. And this time around, we have seen cases in long-term residential care, but far fewer um, uh, as a ratio to the total number of cases than we saw in March and April. So yes, there is really good news here that in a second and very significant wave in Ireland, uh, alongside um, a second and very significant wave across Europe, uh, we saw relatively fewer hospitalizations, relatively fewer deaths for those reasons. It was a disease predominantly of younger people and, and, and vulnerable people, in particular those in long-term residential care, uh, were effectively protected second time round. Yeah, a, a second wave wasn't inevitable. We talked about it a lot, but it wasn't inevitable. Is there anything that we've learned that went wrong with our reopening? I think best way to think about it is not so much something that went wrong with the reopening in, in terms of how it was phased or what was open and what was not open. I think what we collectively failed to appreciate is just how important it was to limit our own individual social contacts. So I think the thing that, that I have learned is, I think perhaps next time around, we need to be even clearer with people about what is a safe level of social contact to have in a typical week. You know, how, how many people is it safe to meet might be a good way to think about it. So, uh, and the issue is that again, to come back to a comment I made earlier, that is so marginal. So, the difference between two contacts a day and three contacts a day is huge when it comes to the potential transmission of the virus. Uh, so that means the difference between 10 contacts a week and six contacts a week and 15 contacts a week, those three, and I'm just putting those out as, as, as examples, those three different choices, if we all make them, are, would lead to radically different patterns of propagation of the disease. So I think um, as hopefully we look towards the spring and, and think about how are we going to live with the threat of this virus until such time as uh, vaccines significantly reduce the level of threat it presents, we're going to have to think really carefully about how do we support people through thinking about levels of social contact and safety of social contact over a typical week or month 
We, we know now that ventilation in indoor spaces is really important. Will that become part of a nuanced set of restrictions? It depends on the ventilation of your office, whether you pass a test or not. So ventilation is important. Um, uh, this is a respiratory virus. Uh, it spreads through respiratory droplets and aerosols. Uh, therefore, ventilation and conditions that reduce the chance of droplet or aerosol transmission are an important part of control. What worries me a little bit is um, people sometimes talk about that being the dominant mode of transmission, and it really doesn't look like that. So sometimes you see a super spreader event in a, in a, in a particular setting, and a conclusion is drawn that must have been long range aerosol spread. Whereas in fact, if you talk to the public health doctor that was investigating it, they'll say, no, people were mixing and mingling and touching and hugging each other and, you know, passing drinks to each other and so on. So yes, ventilation is important. Uh, there's good guidance on ventilation out there, but even more important than that uh, is, is sustained close physical contact, um, be it in the home, uh, be it in a friend's house, uh, be it at a small party of one kind or another, they're the circumstances under which most transmissions occur. Um, and again, to come back to schools, one of the things that we have learned over the last six months or so is that the types of precautions that are taken in schools, um, good ventilation, mask wearing, very strict protocols about sanitization really do seem to be working. And in a way, there's a lesson for all of us then. Uh, if we look at how the work that school principals and teachers have done to make schools safe, uh, we can think about making other settings, including our homes, to be quite frank, um, as safe as those settings. We have a few questions from readers um, about various aspects of your work. Um, one uh, or listener, I should say, one listener um, asks, why do we include probable or suspected cases in the death figures? Is this a requirement of infectious disease legislation? We do it for transparency. Um, so th there was a time um, very early in the pandemic when uh, we were just reporting deaths where there had been a swab positive uh, confirmation that the person uh, had SARS coronavirus 2 infection. Around that time, it was either the ECDC or the World Health Organization made the recommendation that you should also report a circumstance where there hadn't been a test done, but the attending physician was of the view uh, that this was a, a COVID related death. Um, and I think that was particularly important, not only in Ireland, but in many countries around the world where the testing capacity was under strain. And sadly, mostly outside Ireland, it was clear that there were people dying uh, with COVID infections, that there simply wasn't the capacity to, to confirm in a laboratory uh, that they had SARS coronavirus too. So we were simply following global good advice um it wasn't so much that it was a requirement of legislation it was it was much more that it was seen as good practice internationally um to report both figures and and we've continued to do so 
Um, another thing that has got a lot of pickup on social media and, and various outlets is the accusation that PCR tests are too sensitive, that they pick up cases which actually don't pose a risk because the patient's viral load is so small. Is that actually an issue? Again, that's a question from a listener. No, it's it's really not an issue. So too sensitive. There's, there's ways to think about that. I mean, I, the first thing that we know about uh, the PCR test is that the false positive rate, uh, which is really a question of specificity, not sensitivity, but the false positive rate is really quite low. So all tests every now and then come up positive when the person doesn't have the disease. And it's it's relatively low for SARS coronavirus, RT-PCR. Um, so that's one concern that people might have that it's too sensitive strictly speaking what we should be saying is that it's not specific enough and therefore coming up positive when people don't have the disease but that that wasn't the question you asked is it too sensitive quite the opposite actually the test is depending on who's administering the swab probably somewhere between 75 and 90 percent sensitive in other words if somebody has the disease then the swab will come back positive in somewhere between 75 and 90 percent of cases. In other words, we'll miss somewhere between 10 and 25 percent of cases because the swab wasn't done very well or because the person, as you said, has a low viral load, either because it's very early on in the infection um, and they're not shedding huge amounts of virus yet or it's late in the infection. and uh, they're recovering and they don't have much virus left. Um, So the vast majority of cases that are RT-PCR positive, well over 95% of those are shedding significant viral loads and present a real risk to anybody around them. And a very small minority, a few percent at most, will be well into their recovery uh, but continuing to have detectable virus and may not may no longer be infectious of course it's really important to detect those people for for two reasons Uh, one you need to go back and look at their family their close contacts and so on to see did they infect somebody uh, in in, in the last few days or the last week and then secondly you need to keep an eye on that person Uh, they may have been symptomatic they may have been quite ill and they they may have long-term sequelae of the disease so you need to know uh, that they were COVID positive at some point so it's 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 not the issue that there's a significant number of people that are test positive that are either not real cases uh, they just have the virus but they're not infected that's not really a phenomenon or that they're no longer a threat to others uh, because they're no longer infectious. That, that's a, it's a tiny minority of positive te- tests will fall into the second category there. And another question from a listener, and this is something that comes up a lot in our fact-checking work as well, the infection fatality rate. So that's the number of people who die out of all cases, the ones that we pick up as well as the ones that we don't. Um, it's quoted as somewhere between 0.1 and 0.5%. What's the significance of that number and what does it tell us about um, this disease? 
So we need to be careful with infection fatality ratio. So an infection fatality ratio is difficult to calculate because you have to know the total number of infections that occurred in the population. And we can never know that because there'll always be infections that we miss because people didn't present for testing or we didn't have enough tests. So it's a hard thing to estimate, but those estimates are, are not far off. Um, so if you look at all of the cases that occurred in Ireland uh, between the 1st of July and the 30th of September, we get a case fatality ratio of about three, four, five per thousand. So somewhere between 0.3 and, and 0.5%. But let's be cautious about that because that is the number of people who sadly die divided by the total number of cases detected, which is close to the total number of infections because our testing regimen is so robust. But that's for the whole population. That includes huge numbers of young people. So that number tells us what the average is for the entire population. Sadly, if we look at it by age, uh, the risk of dying with COVID-19 is negligible if you're under 40, but is about 8% if you're over 85. So there's a very steep increase in infection fatality ratio or case fatality ratio uh, with age. That's why we're very concerned when we begin to see increases in incidence in older people, because we expect, sadly, uh, the number of deaths to increase um, a week or two afterwards. And also uh, the number needs to be put into context. Uh, 03 or 0.5% sounds like a tiny number. But let's think about it in a different way. It's three to five per thousand. So when we were looking at a thousand cases a day, we should and have expected and sadly got three to five deaths per day. So when we're looking at very large case numbers, sadly, even with a low case fatality ratio, we are going to see uh, high numbers of deaths. And that is in a circumstance where older people have successfully protected themselves from the disease and nursing homes have been um, successfully protected. Both of those are very vulnerable defences, if I can put it that way. So we were seeing, sadly, the numbers of deaths that we would have predicted for the cases that we were seeing. And also, I think we're very conscious that it wouldn't take much to either push the disease strongly into older people or push the disease into nursing homes with devastating consequences in that cohort or that setting. So I just advise people that that kind of global average of 0.3 to 0.5% infection fatality ratio is probably a good estimate, but it's much higher in older people. And even though the number sounds small, if you're getting very large numbers of cases, it turns into a very significant number of deaths. It doesn't tell the whole story. One of the things with our strategy, it's been called a seesaw approach. With that, is a third lockdown inevitable? I really don't think so. In fact, quite the opposite. My objective as an advisor uh, is to do everything I can in terms of advising the public, in terms of advising government to ensure that we don't have to go back into very strong restrictions 
such as we're in now. And here's the first thing we should think about. These level five measures are less, they're very strict, but they're less than what had to be done in April and May. So each time we face a resurgence of the disease, we require different measures to bring it back under control. So I think the important thing for us is to learn the lessons of the last nine months, learn the lessons particularly of the last three months uh, in terms of what brings the disease under control, uh, what allows the disease to get out of control, and collectively work really hard through December, January, February uh, to avoid a circumstance where the disease resurges a third time the way it has the first two that requires these kind of quite blunt and very strict uh, measures. So I don't think a third wave such as the first and second waves we have is inevitable nor will it necessarily require the kinds of restrictions and reactions we had to have uh, for the first and second wave. I think both NEFIT and government have worked really hard over the last six weeks, uh, or sorry, over the last four weeks, we, we will continue to work for the remaining two uh, to say, what have we learned? What's going to be different in December, January, February um, to, to, to everything we can to avoid being back in this situation in the future. So it's not our intent to oscillate in and out of very severe restrictions. Uh, it's our intent to over time continually refine the five level framework, continually enhance our advice to the public so that we can avoid having to go back up towards level five uh, into the future. That's the objective. Thank you for listening to The Explainer and a big thank you to Philip for joining us. This episode of The Explainer was brought to you by executive producer Christine Bohan, producer Aoife Barry and assistant producer and tech operator Nikki Ryan. If you're enjoying the episodes, please leave us a review and rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. And more importantly, share with a friend who you think will enjoy them. Thank you and catch you next time. <laughs>